Father's Day, Mother's Day are always uh, easy opportunities to kind of make a connection between our experience of our own parents and the way that we understand God. And Father's Day may be the most accessible of those two options just by the language that's used in Scripture. And so as you think about your experience with your father, for some of you, that is really uh, an easy task. For some of you, you're glad to do that. If you're like me, you grew up with a great father. And so it's really comforting to think about the connection between how you understand your experience of your father and the way that you understand the way that God might operate as a father. For others of us, though, that's not your experience. Maybe because of absence or maybe because of behavior or personality or just the complexities of difficult relationships with parents, uh, sometimes making the jump from your experience of your father or parent to the way that you understand God working as a father or parent is difficult. It's hard. But the way that we understand God to work actually really matters. And it's one of the things that maybe matters most, not just because of the way that we intellectually understand who God is, but just in the same way that who your parents were informed how you acted and operated and lived your life as a kid. Same thing matters for the way that we understand how God works. Uh, impacts the way that we understand who we are and who we're called to be and how we're supposed to live. And so for those of you who grew up in an experience where you had a very uh, supportive, encouraging, gracious, generous father, you found life and freedom and joy in your childhood. And of course, we're painting broad strokes here because nobody's childhood is perfect and no parents are perfect. But if you grew up in a much different reality that was harder, more challenging, more complex, it might have impacted the way that you were able to act and to kind of experience your childhood. That's why the ideas that we hold around who God is and how we understand God to be matter because if... For example, you think that God is mean and judgmental and vindictive and waiting to catch you at any moment that you make a mistake, of course that's going to impact the way that you live. Of course that's going to impact your relationship with God. It's going to impact how you probably treat other people because we are made in the image of God. And so if we think God is waiting to say, aha, I gotcha, we might respond in the same way in the world pointing out all the flaws and failures and deficiencies of the people around us, perhaps pointing those own kind of um, series of criticisms and judgments upon ourselves most severely. Or, for example, if you think of God as distant but generally kind and supportive and just kind of wants you to be happy however you'd like to define happiness, then that informs oftentimes how you choose to live. You get to do what you want, when you want, because you don't really have that attentive of a parent. Maybe you grew up in that environment where you could stay out as long as you wanted, as often as you wanted. And generally, as long as you didn't cause any problems at school or at home, you were left to tend for yourself. That impacts the way that you act as a kid based on the type of parent that you have. And so we oftentimes kind of transpose those same ideas onto the way that God works. But I want to offer a, a different idea about God. Because, like we said, how we think about God 
matters. And our understanding of how God is at work in the world, who God is to us, who God is calling us to be, that matters as well. And there are all sorts of ideas if you look at kind of the scope of Christian theology about what God is, what God looks like, the way that God kind of views us and our relationship with God. But I want to present this morning a very specific understanding of who God is. And this is formed by Wesleyan theology. This is theology that comes from John Wesley. This is what we are doing in the course of this sermon series called Roots. We are tapping back into the essence and the essentials of our faith to recognize that which needs to be kind of rediscovered, reclaimed, um, celebrated, championed, kind of the essentials of our faith in an attempt to maybe revitalize our experience of faith. John Wesley kind of has this famous quote talking about kind of projecting onto the future what he fears for this movement that he started called Methodism. And we've shared it over the last several weeks. And so this morning, I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. But basically he says, I don't fear that Methodists should ever cease to exist, whether it's in America or Europe. My fear, though, is that they only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. That's what we're trying to avoid here at The Grove the form of religion without the power. And so what John Wesley goes on to say is that the only way to ensure that this doesn't happen is that they hold fast to the doctrine, to the spirit, and to the disciplines to which they first set out. That's the antidote to the form of religion without any power, is reclaiming the roots, the core essentials of the faith, and holding fast to those. And so that's what we're attempting to do. And last week, we talked about this idea of Christian perfection, of complete sanctification, of ultimately what it means is that it's possible in this life, through the power of the Holy Spirit, that we can begin to look more and more like Christ, that our actions actually take on a greater level of holiness, both in our hearts and in our minds and our behaviors, that we can change, that we don't have to be subject to the power of sin in our life, that there is something better for us than just kind of this start, stop, one step forward, one step back mentality of our faith. And so today we're going to kind of show the rest of the conversation as it relates to this process um, of the way that God is at work in our lives. Now, this is something that we're going to use some kind of theological language, but this uh, something I'm going to put up on the screen here in a second, but Really what it is, is it's Wesley's understanding of what salvation looks like. Now, there's a lot of different things that we're going to unpack this morning, so we're going to keep coming back to this image. The first thing, though, that I need to talk about is it was not viewed as a linear process. I just think that the visual is helpful. So just like any life, there are ups and downs, starts and stops, doubling backs, Perhaps you've experienced that in your own faith journey. It has not been kind of like up and to the right always and forevermore, but it's kind of been this kind of meandering, winding process. The reason I represent it as such visually is to understand how we can move through this process. Now, where we start is really important. And this is why I started this whole conversation with our understanding of God. Because central to this idea is that we're made in the image of God. 
We see this in the opening pages of Scripture, in the book of Genesis. Humankind is made in the image of God. And so if we're made in the image of God, the goal is to conform to the image of God. Now the problem that we see introduced early in Genesis is this idea of sin, that we decide that we want to remake our lives into our own image, and to our own will and our own desires. We think we know better than God. We think that we are kind of the masters of our own destiny, that we'll take the wheel from here. We got it, God. Thank you so much for the gift of life. But we actually know better. And so we're going to make our own decisions based on our own understanding of how the world works. And we know all the problems that we get ourselves into and how most of the difficulty in life is often self-induced. But that's, that's the primary issue that the rest of Scripture is trying to overcome. We were made in the image of God. Sin was introduced into the world. And now all of humanity has this predisposition to choose our own interests and our own will over that of God's. And we see this in our lives. Kind of, we sing about it in songs. That great line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love what it's referring to. This idea that despite the way that we were designed and created in the image of God, we feel this pull to go our own way. And the rest of scripture is an attempt for God to help us get back into the image of God. Now what Wesley would say is that the way that God works in the world is through his grace. Now this word grace has kind of been co-opted by the rest of our world and has lost some of the power and essence that it originally held. But really, grace is this unmerited, unearned, free gift that God gives out of his overabundance of love to us. This is something that is at work in our lives long before we're ever aware of it. And that's what's called prevenient grace. It comes from this Latin word which means to come before. So you see that. On the other side of sin is this idea of prevenient grace. So what happens is we were created in the image of God. Sin distorts that image. And at some point in our lives, God has been working behind the scenes, moving us towards this sense of uh, realization, conviction, kind of common language would be conscience, where we start to decide I think there's a different way to do this. I think there's a better way to live. I, I, I'm, I feel inclined to maybe go back to church or I feel inclined to kind of take my faith seriously for the first time. It's this motivating force inside of us that draws us to the place where we begin to recognize our need for a relationship with God. Now, for some of us, that happens over and over and over we recognize our need for a relationship with God. We wander away. And we come back to this sense of conviction that the way that we're living is not best. And so we return over and again. For some of us, we had a moment, maybe it was in confirmation, and you stood up before the church and you're like, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Maybe you prayed a prayer where you made kind of the same declaration. Baptism is often seen as part of that process where you take on a new identity as a follower of Christ. And so Wesley says that the thing that helps you get to that place where you recognize your need for God is 
an experience of grace. There's not different types of grace. It's one grace. We just experience it at different moments, a part of the entire process. And so Wesley calls that prevenient grace. You could talk about it as preceding grace, the grace that comes before. Why do we baptize babies in this church? Because we believe that God's grace is at work in their life, even before they're able to name it, acknowledge it, or recognize it. This is the same idea, all kind of manifesting itself. Now, once you get to the place where you're able to identify and ask and kind of declare that you want God to be at work in your life, you want a relationship with God, you want to take on a new identity, we call that justifying grace. And that is the moment where Wesley would say that um, there's an instantaneous act of salvation where somebody is saved in the more traditional sense. Now, this is why this matters. And for some of you, you're like, this feels really dense and heavy, and I'm not sure that I'm tracking. There are some versions of the Christian faith that say that you have to be saved, otherwise you go to hell. That's the story they tell, right? If you don't get saved, you go to hell. That's not the story that John Wesley is trying to get us to understand as revealed in Scripture. What John Wesley is trying to get us to understand is that the beginning of the story determines the ending of a story. Always, 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 always. How a story starts gives you clues as to how the story is going to end. And so if the beginning of the story is we were created in the image of God, guess what the ending of the story is? Not that we avoid everlasting torment and punishment. No, that's not how the story started. The story started as we were created in the image of God. So where do we return at the end of the story? Back to the image of God. Just this time, it looks like Christ-likeness. It's the image of God as revealed in his son. And so the moment that you recognize your need for God to work in your life, to help you begin to live a life that looks like his son, John Wesley says, boom, presto, you are saved. Now, he doesn't use the saved in the sense that like, you avoid eternal damnation. His is not about this legalistic God who looks down and judges us in the moment that you ask for forgiveness of your sins, you experience pardon. There is a pardoning of sorts. There is a forgiveness of sorts. But he uses it in the broader, more holistic sense where salvation is connected actually to kind of that base word like salve. Like if you burned yourself, you'd put a salve on your wound because it's related to healing. It's related to restoration. It's related to returning to wholeness. And so what John Wesley would say is that when you experience salvation through recognizing your need for God, you are now back on the path to being made into and returning to wholeness in the image of God. Which makes a big difference for how we're supposed to live our lives. If you think about the implications of this, like, just trying to avoid going to hell is not a very cheery way to live. But if you recognize that acknowledging your need for God puts you back on the path to becoming more like Christ in your attitudes, in your mindsets, in the way that you're able to love other people, it changes how you're supposed to spend your life. Instead of walking around trying to avoid booby traps, lest you fall through the trap door and end up in a pit of fire, you see the opportunity to begin to live with grace and compassion 
and charity because you have been the recipient of something free and unearned. That's what's actually the good news of the gospel. It's not you don't have to burn forever. It's that you get to return to Christ's likeness. You get to return back to the original intent, being made into the image of God. And this is kind of where we talked about last time. This is that final piece in the process, this sanctifying grace. This is this act that begins to renew us, to transform us, to heal us, to return us to greater wholeness. This is what John Wesley is talking about in this whole process of salvation. And it matters that we understand this, even if it feels dense and heavy and cumbersome because it reveals a gracious and loving God who created us to also be gracious and loving in God's image. Not a vindictive, mean-spirited God or a distant, impassionate God who doesn't actually care about human affairs. No, God cares. God sees. God knows all of the hurts that exist in the world. And in the ways that God can, God is trying to use human partners to heal not both themselves to the image of God, but all of creation to the way that God intended it. This is why when catastrophes happen, we don't think it's at the hand of an angry God punishing sinners. It's because we exist in a world that is free from God's deterministic control. Sometimes bad things happen, yet God is present with us in it. That is always and forever true. It's not a punishment. God didn't do this to you. God is not trying to teach you a lesson. God is with you. God loves you. And God is constantly creating opportunity for you to begin to experience wholeness and a return to the way that God created us, to live in the example of Christ-likeness. Now, I know that's a lot on a Father's Day. But some of this stuff matters. Because it is easy to get caught up in all of the different ideas about who God is and what that means for our lives. And some of it is often a little like troubling and frightening to believe that God would operate that way. But I find this as comforting as any idea in all of faith. That God is constantly creating opportunities for us to return into a loving relationship with God. I think that is the greatest news ever because it doesn't matter what you've done or what you will do. The secret stuff that nobody knows about that you would never name in person, all of the ways that you feel inferior or deficient or incomplete, the ways that you can't believe that a God would ever love you, that you could ever be welcomed back into a relationship. And God says, always and forever, always and forever, you can come home. And there's always an opportunity. There's always a grace that's extended. And it puts us back in the process of becoming more like Christ. And if we could live that out, change everything. It changes the way that we interact with people. It changes the way that we navigate difficult seasons. Because we're not trying to avoid the lightning bolts of an angry God because of our actions or behaviors but it allows us to cry out with longing and say, God, we need you more and more. Even in the ways that I've messed this up and even in the ways that I've created obstacles and barriers to you, God, we need you. 
Lord, we need you every hour. And so on this Father's Day, may you reconsider your understanding of who God is. That you, as God's children, were created in God's image. And that is the greatest news ever. Friends, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, the gift of grace that we receive from you, undeserving, unearned, freely given, let your grace so overwhelm us that we are drawn back into relationship with you daily, that we constantly long for a renewed heart and mind to live more into the example of your Son. God, in doing so, that we would begin to extend that same grace and love to those around us and to your whole entire created world. God, this is what it means to live a part of your kingdom, for heaven to be here on earth. Help us to recognize it, to receive it, and to live into it. We pray this in your name. Amen.